I remember when we had new life in our home. Kid number one, kid number two, kid number three, kid number four. But I especially remember number one, first child. We were new to parenting and all kinds of new patterns and schedules and stuff. Stuff is a technical neonatal name for clothes, toys, blankets, swings, cribs, strollers, and all things newborn. All kinds of well-meaning people, including family, wanted to give us their treasures when we became parents. And honestly, some of their stuff was in good shape, but other stuff was, shall we say, gently worn. Like most new parents, though, I wasn't all that interested. I wanted new. This new baby deserved new stuff, right? Improved, preserved, repaired, restored. That wasn't going to do. It may have worked, but new sounded better. And when given the choice, almost every parent agrees with that. And so does child number two, three, and four. (laughs) Speaking more broadly... In a year like this, who doesn't want new? New opportunities, new health, new peace, new start. And on this Resurrection Sunday, we're here to investigate what's new, what can be new with you, all based upon the claim of Jesus Christ risen from the dead. And if that's true... A brand new reality is possible. Let's begin with the claims of the resurrection itself. Spoiler alert here. The basis of Easter Sunday and our celebration is the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We believe that the resurrection is historically true. And so does the Bible. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're warned of the reality if Jesus wasn't bodily raised from the dead. It says that in that case, our preaching is useless, our faith is futile, we are liars, we are still in our sins, and we're to be pitied more than all men. Quite the affirmation, isn't it? If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. So it's a big deal. Whether you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead really matters. We're going to look at two questions this morning for a claim like that. The first is the question, says who? In other words, based upon what authority should we believe that? And our answer is the Bible itself. All four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, claim this. Here's, for instance, what the Gospel of Luke says about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Listen along. Luke 24, verse 1, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning... The women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of our Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, verse 9, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, 
Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. And so would you, and so would I. Dead bodies don't disappear from the grave. They certainly don't get up and walk out. Lifeless bodies stay dead. So it begs the question, what happened to Jesus? And the Bible's answer here is unambiguous. Jesus rose from the dead. He is risen, the scriptures say. He is risen indeed. And that answers the says who question. That's the description, the definition of the resurrection. And that's not the only thing that matters. Also what matters is the significance or the ramifications of it. See, it's one thing for something, an event to occur. It's another for it to matter. And our second question, the one that we're going to investigate for the remainder of our time is this. So what? Why does it matter that Jesus rose again? Why is the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ significant for our world, for history, for you, for me? If it's true, you might sit there and say, tell me why it's important. This weekend I came across a, a week I came across a fascinating and a disturbing article from Lifeway Research. The article is entitled, What Do Americans Actually Believe About the Resurrection? And the author begins with this statement, quote, the truthfulness of the resurrection is not as controversial today as many Christians assume. The bigger issue, however, may be helping Americans recognize the relevance of Jesus rising from the dead. Two-thirds of American adults, 66%, say they believe the biblical accounts of the physical resurrection of Jesus are completely accurate. Only one in five, 20% disagree, and 14% aren't sure. Did you hear that? According to their research, two-thirds of Americans affirm or consent to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead according to the Bible. Let me give you three brief reflections on that. Number one, that should be of great concern to the scientific materialists of our time. They still have in their minds a lot of people who believe in absurd fairy tales, many of us among them. Second, we often spend a lot of time trying to convince people of claims that they already accept including the resurrection, apparently. Many of them, if this is true, don't need our arguments. Now, it's true that of a younger generation, those between the ages of 18 and 24, denying the biblical account of the resurrection is higher. It's north of 50% rather than a third. So that life stage is particularly skeptical of the resurrection. Third, perhaps most important this morning, that two-thirds figure should be of much concern to us who believe in the resurrection. The good news there is also the bad news. 
Brilliant young scholar Rebecca McLaughlin says this, the idea that someone would say they believe Jesus actually rose from the dead, but that this belief would have so little impact on their life is truly tragic. They need to understand what difference it makes that Jesus rose from the dead. In other words, they need to grapple with that second question, so what? Today we're going to examine that question, so what, from a few verses in the Bible. And we're going to highlight the life-altering difference that the resurrection makes. It matters. Turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's in the middle of the Old Testament. I hope you brought a Bible, but if you didn't, no problem. We've got them for you. You'll see some of our hosts in the aisle there. Just raise your hand and we'll give you a Bible for keeps if you don't own one, on loan if you forgot yours. And if you want a copy of the worship program to take a few notes or follow along in the outline, just raise your hand on that. Some of them have outlines as well. If you're watching online or want to use your device, gracepolaris.org program, you can follow along. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to look at four little verses in the middle of that letter from Paul. And the, the sequence of our exploration will follow the logic of the text itself. So... Pay attention here. We're going to start with verse 17, move back to verses 15 and 16, and finish with verse 14. I I like to describe the outline like this. The reason number two and three are true is because number one is true. You'll see that in a moment. It all starts with a new identity. And as a result, we can have new purpose and new perspective. Look at verse 17. First point in your outline, you can become a new person the best version of your original design. This is about identity. Verse 17 reads, If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. Sounds like a sentence out of a commercial, doesn't it? The old is gone, the new is here. And in fact, Paul's words here are actually stronger. Behold, brand new has arrived. Back in the day of newspapers, remember those? Uh, Decades or centuries ago, after the newspaper went to print, often there was new news, and so there would be people out saying, extra, extra, read all about it. Something phenomenal is true. New is here. Who of us doesn't like something new? They've done cultural studies, and we Americans are the most susceptible to the new is better idea than almost any other culture. If it's new, we assume it's better, and often it is. What's your preference if given the choice? A new car or a used car? New electronics or used electronics? New appliances or used appliances? New books or used books? New or old? When Paul writes here, he's not writing about something that's old, that slowly evolves into something new. No, he's speaking of a point in time in which something radically changes from old to new. A breakthrough occurs. A breakthrough that occurs that is lasting, that is permanent. It's not something that is new but then grows old and outmoded. It's a newness that stays everlasting new. And it's a newness that's both cosmic and personal. On the cosmic level, Jesus' death and resurrection 
deals a fatal blow to our old world of sin and death. Not that it's gone. We know that. We still live in it. But it's gone in the sense that its stranglehold is broken. That sin and death no longer have a monopoly in our world. And on a personal level, because the death of Jesus, you and I can be made new. Literally, what Paul writes here is new creation. Some of your Bibles say the new creation has come. Maybe better is he or he or she is a new creation. Made brand new. Who is that person? Is that you? Is that your story? If you are honest, are you actually a constantly revising, ever adapting version of your old self? The person you've always been? Or is there a new you because of Jesus Christ? The Bible makes crystal clear that in order to become the new you, you have to be in Christ. Which begs the question, what does that mean? If I want to be a new person, if I want to be the best version of my original design, how does that happen? At its heart, when the Bible uses the phrase in Christ, it means organically, relationally, spiritually linked to Jesus Christ. This is more than just a curiosity, more than just an intrigue about him. This is allegiance, belonging, identification with him. To be in Christ means to find your core identity in him. How does that happen? Well, that's the message of the gospel. We can summarize the gospel in four parts. First, God. God created the world. He made every human being in his image. We're made for a relationship with him and we're accountable to him. That's what God has done. But each one of us, going all the way back to Adam, have rebelled against God. We've wanted to live life our own way. The Bible calls this sin. And therefore, we stand under God's righteous judgment. It's what God has made and what sin has done. Third, Jesus. Through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has intervened in the middle of our plight to offer us salvation, to offer us forgiveness of our sin, to take the penalty of death and hell. God, sin, Christ, response. You and I and every person who repents of their sin, sees the dead end of that way, trusts in Jesus Christ alone what he's done for us, can be saved, can experience forgiveness and receive new and everlasting life to be made new and have the gift of the Spirit. This is the message of the gospel. We can be made new. Is that true of you? Is that your story? Of course, in order to be made new, to be brand new in Christ, something has to die. And at the end of verse 14 here, 2 Corinthians 5, we see that the old self indeed does die. We have to die before we can have life. You can't have new life unless your existing Life has died. Jesus said something to that effect. John 12, verse 24, Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. 
Those who are in Christ are made new. We are recreated. We are a spiritual creation, a brand new essence. We have a new calling. We have a new capacity. We have a new plan from God. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says it like this, for we are God's handiwork. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do or to walk in. That's the calling of someone who's been made new. That's what God makes available. And that's what the resurrection of Jesus Christ makes possible. But do you want a new identity? In the Gospels, John chapter 5, the story is told of Jesus who encounters a lame man. And of all the questions he asks, he says this to the man, do you want to be well? Jesus apparently knew that not all who are sick want to be well. Not all who are lame want to walk. Not all who say they want new really want new. Some people are attached to their present reality. Are you? Or do you want new identity? Jesus makes it possible if you do. But it gets better. There's another change that the resurrection of Jesus offers. And it's this, that you can live in a new way. You can live in a new way for the one who conquers death for all. This is the question of purpose. Those who live, verse 15, should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. The Bible claims that the unjust suffering of Jesus on the cross was actually the victory of God at the same time available to all. That Jesus who died rose again on the third day to demonstrate God's power over death, to offer new life to those who trust Jesus for rescue, to enable them, here it is, to live in a new way. That their purpose in life is fundamentally changed. Those words there no longer should be in bold, in caps, in italics. There should be a neon sign on the page. Few of us actually admit that we would like to live differently than we do. Most of us admit that when we look in the mirror. Few of us admit to others that we are plagued by an inescapable selfishness. Most of us know that when we review the video of our lives. Few of us admit that we primarily help others when it benefits ourselves. Most of us realize that we use others when it's good for us. But for those who are found in Christ, they receive a new purpose in life. See, to become a new creature not only changes your eternal destiny, it changes your present activity. It changes your conduct. That we are no longer prisoners to our own selfish desires in the way that we treat others. That we now have the power through the Spirit of God to live differently, to want differently. We've been given not only a new identity, but new power to live that out. A story not from Easter, but from Christmas helps tell it well. The Ebenezer Scrooge of Charles Dickens was a selfish man. 
Dickens writes, he was a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. He swindles, steals, and sabotages all those around him. He loathes the poor. He hates generosity. He clings to greed. A selfish man. One night, the the ghost of his deceased business partner, Jacob Marley, visits him. The ghost warns him of the consequences in the afterlife of his present ways. Maybe you know the story. The ghost of Christmas past shows him the selfishness of his ways and his greed haunts Scrooge. The ghost of Christmas present exposes his heart that has hurt others. And his indifference causes him regret. The ghost of Christmas future yet to come predicts his future and his destiny startles him. And he sees his future and he longs for the chance to change his present. Suddenly he realizes his need for power to live in a new way. He wasn't the man he ought to be. The reality of who I am radically affects how I treat others. The Bible, Luke 19, tells an even better story. You may have heard it growing up, the story of Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector, the the man in upper management for the Jewish IRS. He was wealthy, he was ruthless, and he was despised. He was winning with money, but he was losing in life. He heard about Jesus. He made very creative arrangements to encounter Jesus. When he did, Jesus actually called him out and exposed Zacchaeus' heart. And instead of being defensive, Zacchaeus owned up to it all. He let Jesus change him. He sent personal checks, not IRS checks, personal checks back to those whom he had cheated. And not just for the amount that he had swindled them, but four times the amount. Zacchaeus was a new man with a new purpose. You see, when you encounter Jesus Christ for who he is, not for whom you imagine him to be, things change. Death to the old self, life in Christ, changes the purpose and the power of your life. It's hard to improve on the words of the Apostle Paul who described himself in this way, whose life was radically transformed by the resurrected Jesus. Well, here's testimony in a moment. He says this in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The death I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, Jesus died so Paul could live. And in order for Paul to live, the old Paul had to die so that Jesus could live through him. The sinner Paul needed to die so that the new Paul could emerge in Christ. Sounds intriguing. How does that happen? How's this new purpose possible? Let let Paul himself explain that. Romans 5 Verse 8 says this, but Christ demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul, you, me. 
not just for our benefit, but he died in our place instead of us. He was our proxy. He died on our behalf. He died for me. Go exactly a chapter later, chapter 6, verse 8 of Romans. Paul writes, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Here Paul is saying, not only did Christ die for me, but I died with Christ. My grip on my identity and purpose and perspective, my desires, died. The old me was dealt a fatal blow. A few verses earlier, Romans 6, verse 4, it all comes together. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. He died for me, I died with him. For those who trust Christ, when he died, I died. The old me was crucified, and when Christ was raised, I was raised too. Not just to a new existence, but to a new life. Not just to a new life, but to new purpose. Not just to new purpose, but to new perspective. It gets even better. Because of the resurrected Christ, you can see people with new sight based upon how God sees them. This is perspective. Verse 16, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. A person becomes a new creation and sees all of creation with new eyes. Those who are in Christ. Again, we see this demarcation. No longer from now on. From now on, no longer. There is a split screen. That was then and this is now. Becoming a new creation changes everything. It transforms everything. And Paul speaks of the new view that it gives us in Christ. There are at least three ways that this New sight affects us. It affects us upward, how we view Christ. It affects us inward, how we view ourselves. It affects us outward, how we view others. Let's tease those out. Up, how do I view Christ? Paul, Saul at that time was a sight to behold, a scary sight to behold. Paul lacked nothing in terms of focus and determination and certainty and passion, Paul was a marked man, and Paul marked men. Here's how Paul describes himself in flashback, in hindsight, the old Paul. Acts 22, verse 3, listen. Paul says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia and brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel, a Pharisee, and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison as the high priest and all the council can themselves testify. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon, verse 6, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. See, Paul had decided that Jesus was a false messiah, that he was a heretic, a rebel against Judaism, that Jesus was worthy of death. But after his conversion, no longer. Paul saw Jesus for who he really is. That Jesus is God in the flesh, incarnate. He's the Savior, the Lord of heaven, the true Messiah. Jesus alone fulfills Old Testament promises. Jesus provides forgiveness for sin. Jesus is our substitute. The crucifixion was actually God's victory. The risen Christ is actually the Son of God. Jesus isn't a liar. Jesus isn't a crazy man, a lunatic. Jesus is Lord. And Jesus is the prototype of the new life that he offers us. Paul's perspective had been turned right side up. A man in Christ is a creature entirely renewed. For whom the old judgments have become a thing of the past, he now knows Christ as he truly is. Paul has new sight to view Jesus. He also has new sight as he looks inward in how he regards himself. His view of Christ was transformed, so was his view of Paul. Again, let's hear his words. Philippians chapter 3, another letter that he wrote, verse 4. Here's Paul describing himself. For it is we who are the circumcision, who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Jesus Christ, who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. Here's the flashback. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Do you hear it? I check every box, Paul says. Paul says, I had it all together. I was a winner. I have life by the tail, and it does what I want. Until I met Jesus. Verse 7, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage. The word is even stronger. That I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, a righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, Paul writes, and the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Do you hear Paul now? To know Christ according to the flesh, according to the standards of mankind, is not to know Christ at all. Paul, like millions of people, had a distorted, imaginary view of Christ. But to see Christ rightly allows us to see ourselves rightly. That we have great value to God made in his image and that we are desperate needy sinners in need of a Savior. 
And it also shapes how we view others outward. Maybe the most obvious, maybe the most visible way that we are made new is in how we view others, how we talk to them, how we talk about them, how we treat them. See, our view of Jesus may only come out in a few conversations with people we know well. Our view of ourselves may not come out much at all. But our view of others emerges all over the place. Daily life cannot hide what we think of other people. Pastor Bernie Simmons said this week, the new creation not only helps us be like Jesus, but also to see like Jesus. Human nature is stubborn. We are inclined to categorize people into groups, to assign value to them, better or worse, superior or inferior. It happens on the playground. It happens in the locker room. It happens at the workplace. It happens all over our culture. Usually we tend to be in the in-group, and those who are different from us are the out-group, the other Social categories rule. I have to say that one of the most depressing trends in our culture is this endless march toward endless identity groupings and the celebration of them. At least publicly, years or decades ago, we tended to celebrate what we had in common, but now it's all that distinguishes, all that separates us. We do this based on age and gender, and skin color, and income, and beauty, and sexual preference, and ethnic background, and religion, consciously or unconsciously, we're ranking them all. It's not just diversity. There are the oppressors and the oppressed. There are the heroes and the villains. There are categorizations as far as the eye can see. And if we assign value to them, better or worse, inferior or superior, then we are viewing people according to the flesh from a worldly point of view, Paul says. Of course, it's not that those differences don't exist. They do. We see them. We can't not see them. But noticing them is a far cry from ranking the difference. It's one thing to celebrate diversity. It's another to marinate our minds in favoritism and partiality and prejudice. See, Paul knew that firsthand. Paul Paul saw brains and beauty and background and belief. But when Paul met Christ, those worldly categories were transformed. When Paul saw the crucified and resurrected Jesus. When he considered Good Friday and Easter Sunday, his vision was transformed. These illusions about superiority and inferiority, Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female back in Paul's day, Paul realized we're all at the same level before God. As a new creation, Paul saw every person as a valued image bearer of God and as a hopeless sinner apart from Christ. So the real question, the real distinction was, have they met the Savior? Are they in Christ? Pastor Zach said a few days ago, our primary lens in viewing people is whether they're lost or found, new creation or old. 
And when we view people through that perspective, it changes everything. It changes how we see our spouse and our parents, our children and our friends. It changes how we see our coworker and our neighbor. It changes how we see the cashier and the teller and the waitress and the driver in the next lane and the media personality on TV and the president in the White House. It changes everything. Jesus said, love your neighbor, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, turn the other cheek, return good for evil. The question is, are they lost or found? If they're found, we rejoice and they belong in Christ. And if they're lost, our heart overflows with compassion for them and the courage to let them know of Christ. Reconciled people become reconcilers in how they live. See, the love of Christ kept Paul from living for himself. Instead, it caused him to pour himself out, his life for others. Does that describe you? Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Says who? Says the Bible. Jesus Christ offers you new life. So what? everything. Let me make it personal this Easter Sunday. These verses, the testimony about a man named Paul, they make the resurrection question quite clear. Are you seeking the improved version of yourself or the transformed version? If you want the improved version, I wish you all the best. There are self-help books aplenty. There are pep talks that saturate every form of media. There's spirituality with all kinds of recipes out there. There are people around you that, will, that are worse than you that will make you feel better. But if you want the transformed you, if you want the divine power living in you, you, then Jesus Christ is your only answer. And Jesus is available. And the empty tomb is his resume. Do you have him? Does your life look new? Thank goodness that Easter Sunday follows Good Friday. Thank God. Because death without resurrection is defeat. A dead Savior, that's a contradiction. But a risen Savior has power to make us new. And when he does, those people are transformed. They become new creations with new desires, new loves, new inclinations, new passions in a lost and dying world. One of our pastors reminded me this week of a man in our church who courageously speaks about how Jesus has changed him. He's a walking advertisement. And when he is explaining his life to others, he's fond of saying this, the old me is gone. This is the new me. Who I was is not who I am. Can you say that? Is your life a complex effort to put lipstick on a pig? If so, behind the lipstick is still the pig. But what if you're no longer a pig, but a lamb, a follower, a son or daughter, a new creation? What if you've been made new? That the risen Christ offers 
to take your old life and to make you new, to conquer your death and to give you life, to make you a new person, to help you live in a new way, to enable you to see people with new eyes. See, that's an identity. That's a purpose. That's a perspective to die for. As musicians come up, as we prepare to respond to the message of the resurrected Christ, I want us to look at the screen for what John Stott says about that new creation. And I want you to consider if this is you. He writes, every person who is in Christ is a new creation. This means that our mind, our character, our relationships are all being renewed. It means that we are God's children, Christ's disciples, the Holy Spirit's temple. It means that we belong to a new community, to the family of God. It means that we are God's heirs. Becoming a Christian, Stott writes, is a transforming experience. And indeed, it is. It's on offer for you. It's on offer for me. And it's made possible by the risen Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son to do for us what we could never do and to make possible beyond our wildest dreams. Thank you that you're a God not just of renovation and restoration, but a God of the brand new, a God who can make us what we were designed for. Thank you, Jesus, for your willingness to live, to die, and to rise again so that we might have the hope of a future with you and a new life in Christ. What a Lord, what a Savior, what a King. In Jesus' name, amen.